0: Welcome to Event FOMO. This is the audio catch-up for events you wish you had gone to, but didn't get to. No wonder FOMO, the fear of missing out, is a thing. With the magic of podcasting, we bring you the event's essentials. In this episode, we take you to the University of Melbourne Medical School Reunion Panel Discussion. Medical Research, Evolution and Progress. This panel features insights from Professor Peter Doherty, Professor Judith Whitworth, and Professor Susan Corey. And the discussion is hosted by journalist
1: Natasha Mitchell. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for being here. What a wonderful chance to celebrate the legacy and the present and the future of the Melbourne Medical School. And it's my delight to uh, facilitate two discussions with six special guests who are really going to help us uh, explore how medical science and medical knowledge has evolved and in some cases radically shifted over the last few decades. In our first part, the school has invited three trailblazing scientists whose international careers have in various ways been defined by their relationship with this part of the world, with the Melbourne Medical School, with the University of Melbourne, either as students and scientists or both. And one thing that you will notice is that they keep returning to Melbourne for various reasons. They keep being drawn back here and I think that there is something in that in terms of the culture of research in this whole precinct which is unique in the world and very special indeed and we might get to the bottom of why that is, I think. I've got three people I'd like to welcome to the stage. If you'd like to join me, come on up. Uh, We've got Professor Suzanne Corey, Laureate Professor Peter Doherty and Professor Judith Whitworth. (laughs) What a panel.
2: We can be a These people have things.
1: CVs that uh, that will take you days <laughs> to digest. So I'll just give you a little potted summary. But we have Suzanne Corey, who was Director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research for 13 years, is past President of the Australian Academy of Science, Honorary Professorial Fellow in the School of Biomedical Sciences here, and her illustrious career in immunity, cancer genetics and more All began right here with a Bachelor of Science and a Master's of Science here in the late 1960s. Welcome, Suzanne. Thank you, Natasha. Again, the 65-page CV is reduced to five sentences. Laureate Professor Peter Doherty, welcome, is at the Peter Doherty Institute, no less, for infection and immunity here at the university. Also, he is Michael Tamer Chair at St Jude Children's Research Hospital over in Memphis, Tennessee, although I have wondered... I think you might keep that appointment because you're a Closet Elvis fan. <laughs> <laughs> and he won the Nobel Prize, of course, for Physiology and Medicine in 1996 uh, and was Australian of the Year. But I actually think that it's the fact that the Indirapilli High School, his high school, naming their theatre after Peter's, probably your greatest accolade, wouldn't you think?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Get these well, things into... Def-
3: the building across the street's rather nice, <laughs>
1: Professor Judith Whitworth is Emeritus Professor at the Australian National University, is past President of the Australian Society for Medical Research, former Director of the ANU's esteemed John Curtin School of Medical Research. She was Australia's Chief Medical Officer, the Commonwealth Chief Medical Officer. Before all that, though... All her major qualifications came from the University of Melbourne and she became a trailblazer in hypertension research. But what you'll notice is that all of them have been advocates for their fields and beyond and had big public roles. So I just want to start with all of you and just get a sense your impression of this precinct, this school, this place, Melbourne, and what it is about the culture here that ...seems to grow good research. Suzanne?
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right, Natasha. It it is very special. I'm rather biased. I've worked here my entire research career, my entire mature research career. But I would put it down to the fact that people are geographically close here. We've got so many good scientific organisations working cheek by jowl, and they keep growing the latest one being the Comprehensive Cancer Centre to have joined the circle, CSIRO up the road. So it's always been known as the Parkpool Precinct because of the great science. And I think in Melbourne we're good at collaborating and that is how all of this tradition and great science has grown. Across disciplines. Across disciplines.
1: And across corridors and buildings and streets, which Indeed. isn't the case as much in other cities. I've lived in Sydney for 16 years and just back home and I just didn't get the sense that there was that sort of collaborative ferment going on across institutions in the same way. Well, I can't
0: speak for Sydney, but I can speak for Melbourne and it does happen here. It's great.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Peter, your sense of Melbourne, I mean, you spend time in Tennessee, a lot of your formative years as a vet and, and training as a scientist in veterinary science was in Queensland and beyond...
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I did stay. I as a vet in Brisbane but and did veterinary research for 10 years. But my basic medical research career, which really meant that I switched from doing experiments, analysing infectious diseases of sheep to doing infectious diseases of mice, and then I became an MD, a mouse doctor. That, um, <laughs> that phase of my career began at the John Curtin School of Medical Research, which Judy later directed, a basic biomedical research institute at that time, certainly, then at the University of Pennsylvania and the Wistown Institute. University of Pennsylvania is America's oldest university medical school, founded at the time of Ben Franklin. And also, like this university, substantially founded from the University of Edinburgh, Mm. where I did my PhD. So I have some some link there. And then uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. I first started coming to Melbourne after the Nobel Prize when I was invited to come back here as a part-time kind of visiting fellow, and we came out several times a year, our son and daughter-in-law, and we've got four grandkids here. What impresses me about this university and about Melbourne is the collegiality. You know, universities are very, very strange institutions.
1: And increasingly competitive too.
3: Very competitive, and people are competing with each other, but it's this university, unlike some others I've been involved with, is very collegial, everyone's very supportive... And it extends across that mighty river that so divides this city, the thundering Yarra (laughs) as it surges (laughs) to the sea. And we even collaborate with people at Monash very, very well, in fact. I accept Geoffrey Blaney's explanation. Do you know Geoffrey's explanation? Geoffrey puts it all down to the fact that Melbourne has AFL football. (laughs) um, Sydney and Brisbane... They have rugby league, or traditionally rugby league and rugby union. Rugby union's played by the knobs. Rugby league is played (laughs) by the plebes. They don't talk to each other. They don't drink in the same places. But here, everyone talks AFL.
1: It's the great unifier. The
3: great unifier, and they're all divided into tribes, but you can be a (laughs) member of that tribe at any level of society.
1: Here's the thing. You can also love art and be into AFL. You can also love science and be into AFL. That's true. I reckon you're yeah, onto something true. cultural here. I have to confess,
0: no, no, I've similar. never followed football,
1: though.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm that not.
1: hypothesis <laughs> is gone.
3: <laughs> no, you've just benefited from the, from the culture. <laughs> so I, I think it is a great collegial city. Uh, influence from Melbourne, it's long been Australia's primary medical research city. That goes back a lot, I think, to Macfarlane Burnett, yeah. who was one of a couple of directors back before Suzanne took over. At a, Wee High. Yeah. As an undergraduate student in Brisbane, I was very much influenced by reading some of Burnett's wonderful books that many of you may have read when you went earlier on in your career. So I think uh, it is Australia's premier biomedical research city, but there are great things going on in all our cities, even in Sydney.
0: <laughs> Can I just add to that, because I do... Totally agree with you about McFarlane Burnett's influence. And that's so Melbourne started being interested in medical research at that time through him. But he was very unusual because everybody else who was bright went off overseas to train, which was important to do. But he came back and he stayed back. So he built a scientific tree and a medical tree around him. And that I think benefited. Melbourne,
1: tremendous. And he was here until... Ni- he was alive until 1985, so yes. the generations working today yeah. are, were influenced by him.
3: And the other great theme... I mean, immune, he represented the themes of immunity and infectious disease very strongly, mm-hmm. and latterly in his thinking cancer research, which the Hall Institute is now a lot about. But I think the other great theme in, in Australian <laughs> biomedical science, to me... Well, all the hypertension theme has been very strong, I think, and you'll no doubt comment, Judy, but, but I think neuroscience and that... This is a Sunderland theatre, right? It was Sidney Sunderland. He, he was mm. a neuroscience...
2: Doctor. Neuroanatomist.
3: Yeah, yeah. And then Jack Eccles, who's a Melbourne medical <coughs> graduate, who won the Nobel Prize while he was working at the John Curtin School of Medical Research for his work on neuroscience. And so I think that's the other great theme, and we see that represented in the, uh, the Meyer building just down here.
1: Judith, you have a sense of what it takes to build a, a research culture, having head up the John Curtin Medical School for all those years. And there's an apothecary involved, isn't there? There's a sort of creativity involved in building a community of researchers that thrive. And not just thrive together as an institution, but thrive uh, in the wider community of research. Get the money to do the research, etc.
2: I think, to be fair, that uh, the John Curtin School people knew all about research before I got there. As you've heard from Peter, it's been a wonderful institution and a wonderful contributor. I guess where I've been particularly interested in trying to create research culture was in the Department of Health when I was Chief Medical Officer. And that was a tougher ask. When I first got there, all of the bureaucrats wanted to tell me how important evidence-based medicine was. It is important. And they thought it was important because it's a nice device for determining how you fund. But I was very keen on the notion that not only should medical practice be evidence-based but that policies should be evidence-based. And if you think about it... It's a it,
1: radical concept.
2: Yeah, it, 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 it was. And if you think about it, I mean, most government policies are experiments. They're uncontrolled. They've never been to an ethics committee. They cost billions and they affect millions of lives and they never get evaluated. And we're all the guinea pigs. Exactly. So I think that, for me, although there's still a challenge in, in some places to have research really embedded into the practice of clinical medicine, I think the real challenge is to get it embedded into all our aspects of public life.
1: Yes. I mean, and all of you, the three of you, have taken a public stance on multiple fronts in relation to policy and science. Why? Because not all scientists choose to do that. Is it an inevitable consequence of becoming leaders in your field?
3: Well, I think we've all taken somewhat different approaches. I mean, Judy was an insider. She's actually working in government, she knows how it works. Suzanne had responsibility for a major institution and then for the Academy of Science. So her input came from that, but she obviously had to be rather measured because she's representing those institutions. I came into it totally naive as an individual and I've sort of remained an individual. So I'm kind of the the outsider voice and I can be very irresponsible. In Has anyone read yeah. Peter's
1: Twitter feed?
3: <laughs> Sometimes you make a fool of yourself with that, of course. But, um, but I think we need evidence-based policy and so many things that are facing us. And certainly we need it in the medical area. It can, you can lead to a lot of savings financially and, uh, of mm. course, great health outcomes as well. That's not to say that all medicine is strictly about evidence-based, but I think it's enormously important right across the community. It
0: should aim to be all that evidence-based.
3: Yeah, but part of the evidence is whether you can sell it to the community and the political reality and all the rest. Just one tiny quibble about policy. I don't
2: think we can ever have evidence-based policy. The best we can hope for is evidence-informed policy, and that's because policy right. will be determined by a whole raft of things, what's finance, mm-hmm. you know, the finances and equity considerations, geography, a whole raft of things. But what we can have is the evidence-informing policy. And
3: what worries me is that there's been a significant hollowing out of expertise in our public service, and that has gone on through successive governments. From my perspective, because we were in Canberra at the time, it began with Hawke, but I'm not sure that he started it. But we saw a lot of the medical professionals, for instance, leave the Department of Health at that time,
1: Let's steer away from politics for a moment and back to the science. Suzanne, you grew your scientific chops in an institution when Fred Sanger was there developing DNA sequencing. Francis Crick was still bouncing around. He of DNA double helix fame. I mean, what an incredible environment within which to work as a PhD student. And I'm just wondering, at what point did you see the potential for a genomic approach to cancer?
0: Well, that came later. At the beginning, I was interested. I fell in love with molecular biology here in the biochemistry department during my bachelor's degree. And that's why I went to Cambridge to the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, or LMB as we called it. I wrote to Francis Crick and said, can I be your PhD student? And
1: astonishingly, he said yes. (laughs) I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when you got that letter.
0: (laughs) I got it post restaurant. At a youth hostel in Oslo, I burst into tears because I didn't want to go by then. I just wanted to travel Europe for my entire life. (laughs) (laughs) But back to the LMB, it was an incredibly informative time in my life. I mean, formative, not informative, both, actually. (laughs) All of my attitudes about doing science, what questions to choose, everything was formed by that really intense, nearly three-year period. I watched these amazing scientists around me, I felt very inadequate. I'm not sure I would have had the courage to continue had I not met Jerry Adams, who became my husband. We went off and did science together ever after. <laughs> I don't think at the end of it I still had the courage to try to emulate those people. I still felt very insecure. But mm. it taught me everything, all of my attitudes. But I wanted to come back to Australia and family and the environment here and i wanted to show people in the rest of the world you could do great science in australia so that's how i ended up at the hall institute and and Jerry came with me and we built our lab.
1: Collaborated in together yes. ever since yeah. in, in life and in yes. work. And it's only in the last couple of years that a, a key drug has been approved in the US, across the EU and now in Australia now too, yes. Yes. for treating leukaemia. Venetoclax, Venetoclax is Venetoclax, that it? So yes. that is such an interesting story because that began with work that you were brewing in the late 80s. Yes, in
0: 1988... By then we'd started trying to understand the molecular accidents that cause particular cancers and we were studying a gene called BCL2. We had a previous period studying another gene, but David who who is a PhD student, a graduate of this medical school, he was doing his PhD with us and we were trying to work out the function of this new potential oncogene called BCL2 that had been found um, as a result of a Chromosome translocation in follicular lymphoma. And David found when he put that gene into cells that required cytokines to live and proliferate, that if he took the cytokines away from those cells, they didn't proliferate anymore, but neither did they die. Mm. So this was a very new kind of oncogene, an oncogene that stopped cells from dying. And um, so that was in 1988. That was the very first paper on BCL2's function and it took another 30 years, but now we have a very intimate knowledge of this life-death switch of in cells that involves pro-death and pro-life members of the BCL2
1: family. Because it wasn't just about... The thinking at the time was that it was about... Cancer's about cell proliferation, uncontrolled yep, yep. proliferation. This was about cells just failing to die.
0: When they should. (laughs) So bad cells could keep living Mm. when they should have died. And then they could accumulate other mutations and eventually they become a cancer. But it took 30 years because we needed to understand the whole pathway. And then we, and of course that we is very many people around the world in both academia and industry, realised that drugs could be developed that mimicked the natural um, switches of the death process, and that led to venetoclax. And venetoclax trials in people who've got relapsed, refractory, chronic lymphocytic leukemia took place here at the Peter Mac and the Royal Melbourne Hospital because it was all part of the team who had been working together for many years. So, it's been a great story. It's been hugely exciting. To me, and like a dream come true. It's followed the whole arc of your career. I I never thought, as a basic scientist, that something that I was involved in would end up helping patients because I'm a really fundamental scientist, but we knew it would be important understanding that could lead to that but we didn't think we would be directly involved so it's
1: been very exciting. Very exciting indeed. Peter Doherty when you were you'd done all your degrees and you're launching into the world and it was only in the mid-70s that T-cells were cultivated in a Petri dish for the first time and it was work on T-cells that led to your Nobel Prize so what an interesting time to be alive. It
3: was of course the discoverer of T-cells is Jack Miller who uh worked across the street at the Hall Institute. He actually made the discovery when he was working in London at the Chester Beatty, but then soon returned when uh, Gus Nossel became the director of the Hall Institute after Burnett retired. So Jack spent all his career there. We were working up in Canberra. Uh, our experiments were actually done with mice, but we, what we discovered was that the killer T cells, the assassins of immunity that go around the body and bump off infected cells and hopefully tumour cells, are focused on to the surface of other cells by the fact that they modify the transplant molecules of the cells. And we made that discovery and we developed a theoretical basis for it in about two years. It was me and... young Swiss colleague called Rolf Sinkernagel and 22 years later we got the Nobel Prize. So that was kind of nice. But uh, it took but, a while. And then you,
1: you don't set out thinking I'm going to win a Nobel Prize for this work. I mean, the,
3: the incredible... I think I was barely aware of Nobel yeah, exactly. Prizes. I, mean, I trained as a vet. People ask you, did you aim to win a Nobel Prize? I said I'd have to be a complete idiot to train as a vet to want to, to win a Nobel Prize. I'm mean, the only vet who's ever won one and I've been much more intimate with cows than any other Nobel Prize. <laughs> I won't go into that.
1: I could go down that rabbit hole, but I no, won't. We
3: won't, we won't, we won't with respect to, to Jerry and, and Suzanne, they were right at the beginning of the development of molecular cell biology in Australia, and they and other workers at the Hall Institute, particularly associated with Don Metcalf, have had an enormous influence on the development of that science in Australia, and that's come out of Melbourne. I mean, Some of it came out of Adelaide, some out of Brisbane as well, I mean, it's... It's across the board. But the really great thing about contemporary modern molecular medical science is just that the basic science has come back together with the clinical in a way that's totally unprecedented. We were working with T cells, okay? So we just think about it as a pediatrician. I mean if you want to work with white blood cells from a little kid, how many white blood cells can you get? Very, very few. Mm. And so that was very, very limiting in what you could actually do with human beings if you wanted to look at cellular immunity. But now we can take a single white blood cell out of the arm of a patient. We can see all the genes that are expressed. We can even see the transcriptional pathways and the epigenetic control. We can have an enormous amount of information just from one cell. And it's an extraordinary time. And what's extraordinary, I mean, it's just so wonderful to get the... The Peter MacDown down on site, Everything. because they have fantastic basic science, wonderful clinical resources and equipment, and, of course, they're tying in with Royal Melbourne and with the Hall Institute and all the rest of it. Our new building, what it does is it brings together the basic microbiology department from the university, together with all the practical infectious disease in this area, state virus diagnostic, state bacteriology diagnostic, World Health Influenza Centre, clinical infectious disease service for the hospital... It's all in the building. So when Zika virus hit, for instance, in, in Brazil and South America and we got all these babies with, with shrunken heads, we were able to run a one-day symposium on it with informed people just from within our own institute. That's what's happening around the place generally and in biomedical research generally. And it,
1: I mean, the infectious disease community have been absolute trailblazers in terms of building global systems of communicating information...
3: There are two features. To, apart from the, the contributions to science itself, we also have a sort of wonderful groups like uh, the Nossel Institute, the Burnett Institute, the do it, fantastic outreach into other countries from the point of view of human well-being and uh, risk uh, abatement and all that sort of thing. Because what we've all realised, and of course, Judy would have known this all along as a clinical person, is that So much of of what is problematic uh, in medicine is is behavioural. And I I first learned it as a basic infectious disease type researcher uh, when the AIDS pandemic hit. And you realise just how how big and how difficult to change the behavioural component is. Well, and that's
1: a whole other conversation because, of course, Melbourne was such a, a vibrant hub for innovation around the social aspects as well as the scientific aspects of HIV. Judith, hypertension. You have represented your science and the entire conversation about hypertension at the global scale, at the WHO scale. Tell us about that process from going from a student here in Melbourne... Developing a specialty and then making that decision to represent on the global stage, to really advocate on the global stage, to change public
2: health. I fell into it, as most people fall into things in their careers. I was always very interested in in medical research, and I chaired the Medical Research Committee for NHMRC for a time. And then I got called up by people there who said, we need a new chief medical officer, come down to Canberra and do it.
1: But you developed your scientific specialty in Melbourne. Oh, I did. I
2: I, I did my PhD at the Flory. But in fact, coming back to what's been said about infections, I mean, the the most important day in my life probably was my fifth birthday (laughs) when I was carted off to Fairfield Infectious Disease Hospital in an ambulance with my mother running behind. Parents couldn't come and visit me. I had polio. And my first job as a doctor was back at Fairfield, and the wards were full of people with hepatitis and measles and whooping cough, things that yeah. mm. that uh, we see very little of these days. But there was a very large ward there full of polio survivors who were on iron lungs. And so I was always interested in what research could do because by that stage uh, polio was on the way out. And then to come back to when I got asked to go down to the department, you can imagine it was culture shock and I've already described uh, some of that culture shock but I really enjoyed it, worked with some extremely good people in those days, public servants who who were still frank and fearless. I uh, had a good minister in Michael Woolridge but one of my tasks was to represent uh, Australia at the World Health Assembly and that was quite fun. We had a big team of DFAT people and aid people and, and so on and So uh, I got interested in some of the bigger questions. Did you have a
1: sense of how you could be effective early on in that kind of environment?
2: I've never forgotten, my first day in the department and one of the other Depth Secretaries said to me, well, he said, actually, you can do quite a lot here as long as it's in the legislation. And he said, but of course, you can always try and get the legislation changed. So in public policy positions, it is possible to be a champion for change. And so when my term as CMO was up, I was asked uh, by WHO to chair their global advisory committee on, on health research. And interestingly, the major task there was really a normative one. That is to make sure that there were in place international standards, if you like, for ethics, for clinical trials, for trial registration, for developing of research contracts for good scientific conduct. And I guess people think of WHO as a as a large global umbrella organisation. The truth is they do very little research. So the importance of the organisation is in this standard setting and normative function.
1: Mm. As you were developing those standards, which are absolutely vital because they filter down through to individual countries, to individual institutions, although we could have a long and robust debate about the role of ethics committees and their various successes and barriers. But did you have a sense then of in developing those global standards of how they translated back down into individual environments?
2: That's the key, isn't it? Because most of what we do is national, not international. And the international organisations, I guess, are are looking to ensure that within countries there are particular standards. And they can develop standards and and then they can be
1: willfully ignored, can't they?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. But it's very important to have them in place in the first place, place, to have a standard that people will aspire to.
1: And
0: especially because as research collaborations go between countries that you don't have an evasion of standards because you're following the lower standards. So I think actually these normative things and working on them is really very, very important. We could have a tremendous amount of, of bad science being done without them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They build a sort of yeah. col- a global culture of science, yes. don't they? In collaboration. Yes.
0: Could I ask Judith a question? Please. I was very struck by the articles that have come out recently of um, the health problems in PNG and how infectious diseases, actually it's a question for both of you, how infectious diseases are becoming rampant. Again, they're really major problems.
1: Polio's back.
0: Yes, and TB of course is really bad. So multi-drug resistance TB. So what should Australia be doing and how can we get our government to focus on health and medical research being our international responsibility?
2: That's a very good question, and. I think the important point to make is that health and health policy is only one small, and medical practice and so on, only one small aspect of what happens in health, and health can be determined just as importantly by what happens in agricultural policies, in defence. You name any portfolio, and in education, it all comes back and impacts on health. So what you see, I think, with those sort of problems emerging is... Countries under pressure in a variety of reasons. And what do I think our government should be doing? I think our government should be giving aid, both financial and technical. Yes. yes.
3: I think health is um, it's one of the areas that's pretty bipartisan, really, isn't it? I mean, we generally have reasonable agreement across the board on health, and you get support from both sides of politics we've
1: come a long way in terms of biomedical research not sure that we've come such a long way in terms of political discourse look I think that's where we'll uh, say thank you so much to Judy Whitworth to Suzanne Corey and Peter Doherty thank you so much for joining us (laughs) what a treat thank you